just to let you know, as I've been like studying this thing and reading this thing over and over, it's like my mind is starting to go a little crazy. I'm just just kind of giving y'all a heads up on this. Um, This book is doing exactly what it should do and should do for us. It should make our real world begin to maybe look a little less real and God's spiritual world and his power and his authority to look more real than what we have going on. I know that sounds crazy, um, but it is kind of driving me a little crazy, but in a good way, in a good way. Um, Let me do this. Let me take a little bit more time up front on this one. And I'm going to do this um, more than once as we finish this book. Um, for From this point on in our sermon series in Revelation, there will be some hard things you and I will experience through the text. We will at some point in places this book have a hard time accepting what God is doing. We will question the whys and what's of his actions. We will not always agree with the suffering that happens at his direction. Understand what this says about us. If this is the Bible, if we accept it as God's revealed word to us about him, then our questionings tell what's going on. That we are in some way in our hearts, in our minds, in our world, we're estranged from God. And now we have this struggle between a holy God and who and we who are sinful in, in which God will win out the argument until we've experienced the full joy of salvation. We will, at times, hate that losing feeling that God is right. And my conflicting feelings on it are, 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 are given, it will, you know, I have these conflicting feelings that make me ask why and what, Lord, are you doing? And, and you have suffering and hell and all these things. And, and, and so we have this conflict because God is right and in some way we're fallen and sinful and wrong. So we have these questions of why God? As I'm reading and studying through this, I'm like, Why? Why, God? This doesn't seem right to me. This doesn't sit well with me. And I've been talking to um, Pastor Giorgio about it and some other people, and and I thought about what would God's answer be? His answer would be exactly what the book of Revelation tells us. Why do these things happen? For his glory. Does that satisfy us? No, I mean... (laughs) Not really. Not at all exactly. See, the goal of this book and scripture as a whole is to be led to Jesus for relief to let him satisfy what this book causes to stir and burn in your heart. As we see in the morning's text that that it's not just the Lord of Lords and King of Kings who's open in these seals, but the Lamb. The lamb, which means he, the one who opens the seals is the one who comes to give us mercy. And believe it or not, and I wish you would believe it, it was God's plan and purpose that you and I, as we hear and explore this book and its cycles of God's unfolding plan for the earth and humankind and experience that we reflect and be impacted by the pain 
That we, yes, be perplexed by this impending and, and presently experienced catastrophes of the world that God with, with hard and, and soft strokes is, is molding for his purposes like, like a ball of hardened clay. At times in this text we see that God will stroke it gently. And then at another time he'll pound it or with an intentional force he'll tear it and then restore it rightly. This morning we will be perplexed. Not by a pound by God's fist or a punch, but a deliberate pinch to the clay of God's purpose. A pinch because of sin in the world, followed by the experience and promise of his peace. Let me be careful here. I say pinch, not because the events of we see of God's judgment aren't painful and final here, but the opening of the seals in comparison to the experience of its parallel cycles reads and feels less hard and hurtful. Now, now, let, now like every cycle, though, the opening of the seals seems to reflect redemptive history from beginning to end, from Eden up to the second coming of Jesus. I want you, as with all of these cycles to recognize that they are spiritual movements and actions that have physical and real results on earth. That they are a vision with symbols for our feeling and our limited understanding. And for that reason, they are near impossible. Let me say it again. They are near impossible to, to nail into a particular human historical framework. Remember, this is the unfolding of God's eternal purposes for the world. So the, the experience revealed by the opening of these seals they have happened or felt or have been felt in some degree or in t- some intensity by almost every historical pe- period of people. All except, of course, the second coming of Jesus in the final heaven. We may, like, take for example, we may not have experienced widespread famine in America within the last 10 years. But there are countries that have experienced it and our experience. See, we can't be subjective about which seals are being opened and how this is turning out. And, and this happened in 1945 and, and this happened in 1956 and 1957. How can you and your subjectiveness and your linear humanity determine that this thing happened at this time when you had no ability to see the whole earth and what was going on? This is a universal opening of the seals. So when did the first events of the first five seals happen? Happen. In eternity past. It's kind of hard to understand. In eternity past, as they have been in the mind and purpose of the eternal God forever. Happening in greater and lesser intensities according to the purpose of God that regardless of history or intensity, they point to the world's need for God's plan to come to pass. They point to the world's need for cleansing and redemption, to a consummate end and hope of Jesus now and in a second coming for those who trust him. They all say as the opening of the seals, as the seals are opened, God gives the world a pinch, and God gives the world a peace. See, 
God gives our world a pinch because of the sin of the world. The images of the horses and the horsemen of the first four seals tells everything. Has, been, has already been read. They are like cavaliers of, of Jesus sent out to execute his will on earth. Now remember, this is a vision of spiritual symbolism. God is directing the horsemen so that sin and sinful people can reveal and reserve judgment with his designed end and means. Now the complexities of how he does it can be extremely difficult for us to deal with in our minds. But let me simplify it by saying this. God is causing and will cause a world saturated by sin and sinful people and evil people and even sinners saved by grace to be subjected and hurt and destroyed and oppressed by the forces the symbolic horsemen represent through the results of the first horsemen. There is a vision of of conquering with, with white representing victory here. Kind of this beginning of conquering without bloodshed or, or war, but conquering nevertheless in a way that, that crushes us and hurts our humanity. Whether it's by some oppressive leader that's over you, or by the smiling politician, or, or even think about the promises of the bloodless bondages of systems like capitalism that lead us to being controlled by greed and, and power, or, or the bloodless but dangerous joys of, of hedonism. We see that he is also subjecting the world in the opening of the second seal and hits its horse and horsemen, the red horse of violence and hatred. He's going to give men and women over to hating each other, to the point of killing one another, to the craziness of taking the life of someone who in being is just like you because of hatred. And then he will, after that sin, and then he sends by his orders of the third seal, the third third horseman, the, the black horse of economic uncertainty and fallouts and crashes. Now we see that these things have happened all over the world, that there's highs and in this case lows that lead to the poverty in the world. Look with me at verse 6 in chapter 6. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, what this is saying is you can, you can typically get a quart of wheat, and that is a day's worth of food. You can make enough pancakes for everybody in the house with, with a quart of wheat. And what it's saying is your day's wages are enough to get you by for that day. Now, it says you can take those same wages and get three, what, what does it say, three quarts of barley for a day's wages. But let me just tell you something about barley. Barley is like the spam of the day. So you can get, like, flour and make some pancakes, or you can go and get that canned government meat kind of stuff, you know, and let it stretch out a little bit. But what he's saying is it's a day-by-day uncertainty of whether you're going to make it. It so represents our, our economic system that he will subject us to this idea that we're living in uncertainty, that, that one day the, the bottom could fall out. That we've had these, these economic crashes. And what he is saying is, I am going to create and subject the world to an economic up and down, and in this case, lows. 
He will subject the world to the terrors of the fourth seal and its horsemen. Let us read verse 8 here. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind them. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beast of the earth. What we see here is the fourth seal and and this pale horse and its rider will come with catastrophes that we hate but we know occur all over the world. I'm talking about starvation. I'm talking about communicable diseases. I'm talking about cancers. It it describes nature turning on people. Stuff like people being mauled by dogs and eaten by lions and attacked by sharks. Insect bites and snake bites and attacks. The kind of things that we give the morbid tag that, that get our attention as a world the most. And though these things will not be the things that bring the greatest end to humanity, because it says only a fourth of humanity was subjected to this, the fourth horseman is said to have hell following close behind him. But as people don't trust in God, when they don't look to Jesus as Savior, that these things will take them out. The combination of the four horsemen, it will take us out and then they'll be swept up, if you will, in in the spiritual judgment by God. The four horsemen. The four horsemen. And then we get this sixth seal. Read with me in verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as, as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the princes and the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of, uh, rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? This highlights, this is it, this is the second coming of Jesus where, where all that survived the other stuff will not escape meeting the Lord Jesus at a second coming. And the interesting thing here is that this event is worldwide and obvious. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's describing the, the sky itself being rolled back. It's talking about stars falling out. It's talking about a, a worldwide earthquake. And then I look at the people mentioned. He says rich people and generals and kings. And then he even goes on the mention not only free people but slaves and so he's saying all the world that's there regardless of how much money you make regardless of what economic situation you're in regardless of your issue you will meet the lord jesus on the great day of wrath in which jesus in his second coming they know what's happening if they're not his, he's coming to rid the world of evil and violence and evil and violent people forever. Now, I have to be fair to Jesus here. 
Because when we look at this, our God looks really mean. I'm looking at this, and I can just imagine. Here, here comes Jesus out the sky, and people, oh, no, please don't destroy me. And, you know, we, we have this kind of Hollywood view of, of War of the Worlds, and Jesus is one of those things shooting people. Here's a thing, again, it's hard for us to hear. That's not too far from the truth. I kind of get this picture. I remember when, when the pictures of the Trade Center were going down, and, 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 and this is, I'm not using this as an illustration to say that was God's judgment. All that. Don't let me say that. I'm using it as a different kind of illustration. I remember people jumping out of windows to their death. It was almost like, I don't want to be burned by this collapsing building, but in their minds, somehow they, they think, maybe I could just jump out the window and escape it. And what people are doing here is, here comes the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. It's the great day of the Lord's wrath. Stuff's rumbling around, and they know this is it, and they know that they're an enemy of Jesus in it. Now, here, here's where we have to be fair to Jesus. They're not saying, oh, Lamb of God, save me. What are they saying? I'd rather jump out of the hundredth floor before I get on, before I turn to you. I would rather the rocks hide me. I would rather the rocks fall on me. There is no repentance here. It's simply, it's too late. It's my heart won't even let me ask Jesus for repentance. I don't want to face him. I don't want to see him. He and I are at odds because I am at odds with him. He is my enemy because my heart has made him my enemy. But join with these terrifying, righteous moves of God on the earth is the persecution of the saints in the opening of the fifth seal. Listen again at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood, then that each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. What's in the fifth seal? The fifth seal of God. His children suffering and being killed for the gospel. The picture here is bleak. You know how we ask God questions? Again, you ask God questions, you just might not want to hear the answer. Here are people who've died for the gospel, standing up for the lamb, the one who's opening the seal. And again, this is from the beginning of the church to up to now. And, and I want you to understand, because when I read this, it totally is alien to me, because I live in a, in a country where, you know, we're not an underground church. I mean, as long as we pay our money and we're quiet, we do our thing, we vote, we pay our taxes or, or whatever, we're pretty good here. But it's not like that all over the world. 
So I want you to understand that this thing is really happening. People who claim, who, who proclaim God's truth are being killed and their lives are being destroyed. And when they ask the question, Lord, how long, you know, you kind of have this picture of them under the altar. You kind of have this picture of them being killed and sacrificed and their souls are crying out to God. Look, we died for you and it's hurting and, and, and we're wondering when this thing is going to make sense. When will our death for you means something. And what does God give? The answer. It remembers human beings when you ask God the answer. I mean, question, and he gives it to you. And this is his answer. I still have some more of you to be killed for me. When more believers like you, I'm waiting for more people to be like you, dead and suffering for the gospel. And then it'll be okay. Now, God doesn't give a hard answer without comfort here. Because the scripture says he gives them a white robe. And what is he saying? He's assuring them that their salvation and their place in glory is secure. He's saying, yes, you died, but let me assure you of what the blood of the Lamb has done for you. Let, let me assure you that you will not be forgotten. Let me assure you, here's your robe. Here's your clothing for the big party in heaven. Here it is. You, you got it. You can't wear it yet. It ain't time yet. You know, it's like a wedding dress. Here's the wedding's coming. You're going to go through some trouble, but you got the dress and you know you're going to get married and so what the lord is doing with the fits is he's telling his people that suffer through it all he says yes you will suffer you will die and you will continue to not be avenged until more of you die for the gospel but i am here to tell you i see you and have not forgotten you and you can be assured that you will be avenged if you will and it's in the sixth seal that we get some clarity to what God is doing in these opening directives of pain and death and suffering. He's judging the world, the evil of this world, before his holiness. He is subjecting the world to the pains of sin so that they may cry out to God for salvation, seeing that no other and none other can save them. And for believers, that in times of hardship and struggle, that we'll seek and find their hope in the loving purposes and assurances that God gives in Jesus Christ, that in our suffering and pain and even in our death, that we would look for God, we would look and see that we have a white robe for us in heaven it is reserved for us and god assures us of that every time we get his means of grace every time we hear his word every time we sing his praises every time we pray every time we fellowship every time we take this lord's supper the lord is reminding us in your death in your suffering you have a white robe that i am in the process of of unveiling the wonders of my gospel. And sometimes I unveil that wonder in the power of that gospel in the death of my people as they stand for it and bring it. That for us, when this stuff happens, famine and war and economic disaster 
and all kind of conquerings of our hearts and our country. When this stuff happens and you are caught up in the messes and you are made an audience and victim of these things spoken of here, whether tears, I mean, the question is, are tears all you have to bring and hope for? When these things happen, is are you looking for just another human institution to run to? God is asking in these things, are you trying to hold your own umbrella in the showers and winds of suffering? God wants you to ask for help. He wants you to cry, uncle, I, I give up, I surrender, Lord. I, I can't save my marriage, I can't heal and handle my depression, I can't deal with the kids, I can't handle this world, I can't handle my history, I can't handle my life, I can't handle the famine I see when I turn on CNN every day, when I see bombings in London and I see kids blown up in Iraq and I see us going to war and I see that it may never end and I see our, 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 our soldiers coming back hurt and I see their soldiers hurt and I see fatherless children children left and I see kids dying with the with the extended stomach just not enough food to eat and I see people killing each other Lord I cry out to you for help for it is the lamb that opens the seal and what does people must see and accept is that God is ex- executing his desires with the righteous anger of a man whose wife is being stolen away. He will restore and rescue and redeem and avenge and judge those who causes people in this world not to know and experience his holiness and glory and love in its fullness. He is calling his people to suffer and die and wait and spread the gospel in dim reflection of what Jesus did so that sinners can be led to forgiveness and faith. Why do and will bad things happen to good people and bad people, to all people? And I say good and bad, good and bad according to our subjective lenses, of course. You know, we we all have good definitions of what makes good people and bad people. Why does God seem here to drop successive bombs on the earth? I mean... This kind of spiritual fumigation causing a harsh reaction from exposure to the young and the old, the rich and the poor, believer and unbeliever. Why? To save people. To call people out and, and, and call them to him to give no way out, to, to have them turn and give no credit to anything else except the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. To after the pinch, after the pain, to have the world and his people in particular, no peace, know a world that is finally cleansed, finally purified, finally redeemed. God comes in these seals to give our world peace. To give a world that is finally redeemed. Now, in the beginning of, 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 of verse, verses of chapter 7, we have mentioned here the 144,000 people in white robes. Obviously, these people are redeemed by God. And, and there are certain religions that say, this is the definite number of those saved by God to be in heaven. I'm sorry if we run out of enough spots. 144,000 is all there is. 
or, or some people believe that it's a number of Jews to be saved since they use the names of the tribe. But there are too many irregularities to, to come to these conclusions. First of all, the listing of Joseph and the half-tribes together, and, and Dan is, mentioned, is not even mentioned here. So it's not purely about the Jewish heritage then. But it includes God's salvation in them and through them and redemptive history. It's not about a number. Look with me at verse 9. So you have this 144,000 mentioned, and then it says, After this, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They're wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we have this, I want to kind of say it's like it's a Hollywood camera zoom out. You know, John sees this 144,000 robed and, and he, he, he kind of, the number kind of jogs this 12, 12, 1,000 thing. And, and, and so, could you imagine, it's just this one little thing and he sees this choir and he's impressed by it. Wow, 144,000 redeemed. And then all of a sudden the camera zooms back, bum, 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 and you zoom out and it's not 144,000. It's a number no man can count. That he's just looking at the alto section. He hasn't yet seen the sopranos and the basses and the baritones. He's just seen the violin section of God's redeemed choir. He hasn't zoomed out and seen the full spectrum of God's saving work from beginning to end. But what we do have here is the idea of God's redemption calling humankind to have a relationship with him finally and fully being redeemed by him from and, and through Old Testament relationships right up to the present. This completeness John sees is overwhelming and more than we can know or imagine. It's the 12 tribes times the 12 tribes. It's, it's exponentially perfect. It's the 12 men who walk with Jesus times 12 and then times a thousand, a complete millennial number. It's completeness is that the, the, the number is perfectly known and executed by God and real people in time and space. But that number and the complexities of those salvations how people came to Christ, what church they came into, what country they came from. Those complexities are, are the Lord's, and it, it totally escapes us. It's a number we cannot count. It's a, it's a salvation that, that we cannot comprehend. It's so big. It's so thorough. It's so right. It's so perfect. What it says is, I have saved a world that you don't see on an everyday basis, and I have saved them perfectly. None of my people have been lost. Yes, there's been famine. Yes, there's been war. Yes, there's been death. But the number I know, even though when you as a human being see it, it will overwhelm you. And what does that overwhelming, complex, exact number say? Look what Jesus has done. Glory to his name. Look at the people. They in? How did they get in? I only, I mean, could you imagine if you, you died back in, in, if you were part of the Israelites and you died back then and you go to heaven and you're like, oh, what's, you know, what's up, tribe of Dan? What's up, you know, uh, tribe of Judah? What's up? And then all of a sudden you look around and you see Howard Brown from Charleston, South Carolina. 
who, who is this brother over here? And, and, and who are these lighter skinned brothers? And, and who are these darker skinned brothers? And, and what language is this one talking? And, and what tribe and what issue and what country and what calamity and what catastrophe that Jesus has overcome that they hear with me? This is unbelievable. Lord, I just, I just think I'll just join in and praise you for all eternity. That we see that he is a powerful and perfect Savior for those. There ain't nobody like this. Every Savior that came along, he burned out by the time he died. But when you look at heaven, Jesus has done it for every tribe and tongue and nation and people, every issue. It is un. Believable, and you understand what people, I mean, just imagine, salvation belongs to our God who sits on a throne and to the Lamb. That one Lord and Savior has redeemed this multitude of people that we can't count. He's saying, don't worry. Don't fret. In the middle of war, in the middle of famine, I am perfectly and assuredly and awesomely redeeming the world. And so we have this vision of functions and and the fantastic nature of heaven. And, And we see that the world is finally redeemed as it comes to live and give worship to God living in the final revelation of glory, worshiping perfection, that those saved but worship reflect his beauty. Let's look at verse 14 through 17. And, and so he asked his elders, who are these people? And he says, you know, Mr. Elder. And he said, these are they who have come out the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. He sits on the throne, he who, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over him. Never again will they hunger. Never never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And when we see the reversal with the four horses and horsemen brought, that the natural elements become a relief instead of a terror. Work becomes worship instead of slavery. Being ruled and conquered or lord over becomes service and fulfilling to them instead of bondage. Addiction to ideals or governments or people or clamoring for survival or acceptance. Spiritual emptiness. No more tears of that stuff. No more tears of longing to be in or experience a better life or world. No more tears, no more funerals, no more tears of watching and feeling the suffering on the evening news. No more tears of doubt or insecurity or wondering whether God sees us or will help us. No more tears shed in loneliness or fear. No more tears for hard work where it seems you're going uphill and you're not getting anywhere. No more tears of being molested or manipulated by people or popular ideas that crush and demean who you are as a human being. No more tears of how long, how long I can't take much more, Lord. All this becomes a living reality in time and space. Jesus is Lord and finally worlds that are worlds apart come together under his lordship. In perfection. I think about 
that under his authority, here's a crazy picture. You aren't going to heaven to have to work. Yeah, I think there's work. But the picture we got here is that God is going to serve you. I mean, how crazy is that? The Bible says he's going to spread his tent over you. He's going to cover you from the pain. He's going to wipe the tears away. He's going to take the sorrow away. He's going to lead you to the living waters. He's going to feed you. He's going to care for you. He's going to love you. Heaven is God serving you in his holiness, in his love, because he desires to, because he's loving and he loves you. And heaven is, is just this complete, awesome lordship of, you know, governments, we got to pay taxes, and sometimes they don't vote, we don't like the way they go, and sometimes they do bad things to bad people, and to, to good people, and the Lord is saying here, I am the perfect governor. Let me tell you what's, the, what's so awesome about heaven. Heaven isn't just because the stream's always running and the sun's always shining. The glory of heaven is that God is there. God is there. And you are with him. He is heaven. He is heaven's character. He is heaven's peace. He is heaven's light. And he says, I'm going to be their God. And and the lamb that sits on the throne is going to be their shepherd. And he's going to lead them. I mean, just imagine Jesus, the tour guide in heaven. Hey, y'all seen his living water? Drink some of this, y'all. Y'all seen some of this awesome thing? Look what God did. Could you imagine? In Jesus, in our relationship with him, things become fulfilling. And though this, yes, is a final picture, I want you to know this. In Jesus, we have an opportunity to experience, if at least in short expectation, that you and all that you do will mean something. That all you are and do can mean something. Because you are called in Jesus to do and be all in the light of his final redemption that's at work in his children on the earth. There's a peace and a rest for God's people because the world finally rests. This is the final verse here. Look what happens when he opens the seventh seal. I want to let you know, like last week, it's loud in heaven. Imagine a number of people you can't count singing. I'm talking people from Genesis up to we don't know when because we might be dead by the time they come along. And just imagine all these people shouting. This beckons back to Hosanna when the people had the palm branches were laying, welcoming their king and shouting. Salvation belongs to our God. Glory and honor and power forever and ever and ever. Holy, 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 Lord God. It's so loud in heaven, rightly. It's bright and it's loud. And and they open the seventh seal, verse 1 says. And there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. See? Silence is weird, isn't it? If I stand up here for a while, y'all be like, come on. What can we surmise? It's finished. 
God is with his people and his people are with him. It's done. It's like the silence in, in, a, in a baseball stadium when that ball is climbing, 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 and, you, and you're losing by three runs and you need that grand slam. And there's just a silence in the ballpark because everybody knows what's going over the wall. It's the all God being revealed and finished and resting. We could draw on the biblical illustration of Jesus and his bride. Imagine the doors of heaven's church opening. I want you to think about what the church and Jesus have been through, separated from each other, all the problems, and the doors of the church open. I've been to some weddings, and when a door opens and the bride comes out, everybody's looking at the groom and looking back at the bride, and there's this silence of, ooh, now is the time. Imagine the Lord Jesus shed his blood for his church and the doors open and there is his bride, his people, his church ordained in beauty and perfection. The silence of that glance. The heaven silent because it's happened. And God's final plan, however you illustrate it or paint it or describe it or imagine it, is too finally magnificent. It's too resting of all the bu- that bubbles within. It's so awesomely beautiful, so done, so delicious, so filling through the eyes and mind and body and heart and universe. Words can't come out. It can't be uttered. It is finished. No more words need to be said. Nothing else needs to be done. No one need move. It is finished. God is on the throne. And we sit in the quiet ponder of all that this has meant in our lives and lives of the whole world. It has come to a final and ending consummation that the histories of people that went around wondering, what is life's meaning right then when the seventh seal is open? Everything you ever questioned or wondered or struggled or suffered with is dealt with and there's a silent, awesome finish to it. I remember when I got married that wedding night, you know, sitting in the bed, can't sleep, silent, just kind of watching Kelly sleep, you know? And she ain't got to go home at 2 in the morning, you know? And just then kind of looking in the silence, you kind of think about all that went through, kind of rightly tired after the wedding, you know, just worn out. It's that moment when everything is right, right there. God looks at his people in this finish. It's silent because it's right and it's well and it's finished. A pinch, but a piece. Let us pray.